Welcome to the new Fixing Healthcare podcast series, Diving Deep. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. In this episode of Diving Deep, I plan to explore the ways that outdated thinking by regulators will kill thousands of Americans. Then I want your thoughts and best guess on how our nation will help people obtain higher quality, more convenient access, and affordable medical care. Let's begin with the regulators. Why do you think their actions pose a risk for our country? Jeremy, my observation of the history of technology is that people are fearful when it is first introduced, and they want someone to regulate it. I concur that governmental agencies need to ensure that new technology is safe. My problem isn't with regulation per se, but how I see regulators approaching this challenge currently. Rather than understanding and implementing rules appropriate for the future, they most often create restrictions based on outdated thinking on what existed in the past. In fairness, the tendency to regulate the future based on the familiar isn't specific to regulators. It's fundamentally how the human brain works. However, when regulators apply it, rather than making people safer, harm results. We can observe this proclivity in a term we use today, horsepower. In the 1760s, over 250 years ago, Scottish inventor James Watt revolutionized the steam engine, marking an extraordinary leap in engineering. But Watt knew that just creating a better technology, that wasn't sufficient. If he wanted to sell his innovation, he would need to convince potential buyers of his unprecedented power. With a stroke of marketing genius, he began telling people that his steam engine could replace 10 cart-pulling horses. People at the time immediately understood that a machine with 10 horsepower must be incredibly powerful and a worthy investment. What sales took off. Now, 250 years later, we still use the horse as the defining measure of power and apply it to cars and jet engines. Maybe living in Iowa, you have an exact sense of how much power 250 equines generate. But besides thinking it's a lot, I doubt most Americans have any idea. Can you give some concrete examples of how regulators do damage by failing to keep up with the times? Jeremy, I'm happy to do so. You know, a great example is the continued devaluation of virtual visits, despite an explosive and overwhelmingly positive use of the technology during COVID. Currently, the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, which was established in 1973, is implementing regulations to limit the use of telemedicine in treating patients with opioid addiction. This isn't a minor issue, Jeremy. The opioid epidemic, it currently takes more than 100,000 lives a year. How is this problem being addressed and what changes are being implemented? The most successful solution to this deadly problem, according to public health advocates, combines modern information technology with medication. The approach blossomed 
during the COVID pandemic when Congress passed and the president signed into law the Public Health Emergency Declaration. This act eased the restrictions on the use of telemedicine and helped patients access medical services remotely. It allowed doctors to prescribe controlled substances, including buprenorphine, and they could do so via video visits. For patients battling drug addiction, buprenorphine is a Goldilocks. It has just enough efficacy to prevent withdrawal, yet not enough to result in severe respiratory depression, overdose, or death. Research from the National Institute of Health found that this drug improves retention in drug treatment programs. It's helped thousands of people reclaim their lives. But because this opioid produces slight euphoria, drug officials worry it could be abused, that telemedicine prescribing will make it easier for bad actors to push buprenorphine into the black market. And with this emergency declaration now expiring, the DEA has laid out plans to limit telemedicine prescribing of this very effective medication for patients with opioid addiction. What's going to be different in the future than today? Jeremy, the proposed regulations would let doctors prescribe a 30-day course of the drug via telehealth, but then it mandates an in-person visit with a doctor for any renewals. The agency believes, quote, this will prevent the online overprescribing of controlled medications that can cause harm. The DEA's assumption that in-person visit is safer and less corruptible than a virtual visit is outdated and contradicted by clinical research. A recent NIH study, for example, found that overdoses involving buprenorphine did not proportionally increase during the pandemic. Likewise, a Harvard study found that telemedicine is as effective as in-person care for opioid use disorder. Are you recommending that all restrictions be dropped? Not at all. You know, regulators need to monitor the prescribing frequency of controlled substances and conduct audits to weed out fraud. They should demand that prescribing physicians receive proper training and document patient education efforts concerning medical risks. But these requirements, they should apply to all clinicians, regardless of whether the patient is physically present. After all, as we've seen, abuses can happen as easily and readily in person as online. Our nation's outdated approach to addiction treatment isn't working. As we said, more than 100,000 people die every year, and those deaths prove it. I believe the DEA needs to move its mindset into the 21st century. What's another example of regulators looking backwards rather than ahead? Jeremy, as you and I have discussed on a variety of Fixing Healthcare podcasts, ChatGPT will change the practice of medicine as we know it. Not the current version of this powerful generative AI, but future ones. They'll transform medicine, giving patients greater access to medical information and control over their own health. Already, the rate of progress in generative AI has been staggering. Just months ago, the original version of ChatGPT passed the U.S. medical licensing exam, but it did so barely. Weeks ago, Google's MedPalm 2 achieved an impressive 85% score on the same test, placing it in the realm of 
expert physicians. How have regulators reacted so far? Jeremy, they responded with what I'd call a growing amount of worry and caution. As an example, at the Health Data Palooza Conference in February, Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Robert Califf expressed his concern. He pointed out that ChatGPT and similar technologies can either aid or exacerbate the challenge of helping patients make informed health decisions. Similarly, word comments have come from the Federal Trade Commission following a letter that was signed by numerous individuals, including billionaires like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak, and was posted on the Future of Life Institute's website. The letter posited that the new technology, quote, poses profound risks to society and humanity. In response, FTC Chair Lena Khan pledged to pay close attention to the growing AI industry. Given the concerns, it's inevitable, Jeremy, that these agencies will try to regulate generative AI technology. And I think it's going to happen or attempt to happen in the near future. But despite the desire to do so, I believe that regulatory agencies will struggle to accomplish it. Artificial intelligence applications have been with us for many years. How is AI regulated today? New AI-driven technologies are regulated through the Federal Drug Administration, or FDA. Prior to the release of ChatGPT, the agency had evaluated hundreds of AI applications using an approach that is very similar to how it regulates drugs and medical devices and so-called digital therapeutics. In 2022, for example, Apple touted the fact that it had received pre-market clearance from the FDA for a new smartwatch feature that let users know if their heart rhythm showed signs of atrial fibrillation. The approach the FDA has used for testing the effectiveness and safety of these new devices and the embedded algorithms, it made sense in the past. But what most people don't understand is that by taking an approach analogous to how the FDA evaluates medications, this won't work when it comes to ChatGPT and other generative AI applications. Why is that, Robbie? Jeremy, ChatGPT isn't the medical device or digital therapy programmed to address a specific or measurable medical problem. It doesn't contain a simple algorithm that regulators can evaluate for efficacy and safety. It's not what is called narrow AI application. GPT-4 can answer any query and provide detailed medical advice in seconds. ChatGPT isn't a narrowly focused clinical tool, but instead it's a broad facilitator of information. In that way, ChatGPT is similar to the telephone. Regulators can evaluate the safety of smartphones. They can measure how much electromagnetic radiation is given off. They can determine whether the device itself poses a fire hazard. But they can't regulate the safety of how people will use it. As we all know, friends can and often do give each other terrible advice by phone. But regulators are impotent to stop them. Similarly, regulators won't be able to control the questions that people will ask ChatGPT and the problems they will use generative AI to resolve. 
Aside from blocking ChatGPT outright, there's just no way to stop individuals from using it for medical purposes. They can ask it for help with the diagnosis, medication recommendation, or assistance in deciding on alternative medical therapies. And while the technology has been temporarily banned in Italy, that's just not going to happen in the United States. If we want to ensure the safety of ChatGPT, if we want to improve health and save lives, government agencies, instead of trying to restrict the use of this technology, should focus on educating Americans how best to use the application and how to do so most effectively. The lives saved through informed patients, they'll be exponentially greater than any harm created. What's a third example of regulators fixating on the past rather than the future? Jeremy, doctors across the U.S. can apply for a medical license in any state, but the process is time-consuming and laborious. As a result, most physicians are licensed only where they live, and that deprives patients in the other 49 states from accessing their medical expertise. The reason for this approach, it dates back 240 years when the Bill of Rights was passed in 1791, the practice of medicine varied greatly by geography. So states were granted the right to license physicians through their state boards. In 1910, the Flexner Report highlighted widespread failures of medical education and recommended a standard curriculum for all doctors. This process of standardization, it culminated in 1992 when all U.S. physicians were required to take and pass a set of national medical exams. And yet 30 years later, fully trained and board certified doctors still have to apply for a medical license in every state where they wish to practice medicine. Without a second license, the doctor in Chicago can't provide care to a patient across a state border in Indiana, even if separated by a couple of miles. The public health emergency declaration, as we said earlier, did allow doctors to provide virtual care to patients in other states. However, with that policy now expired, physicians will face overly restrictive regulations held over from centuries past. Given the advances in medicine, the availability of technology, and the growing shortage of skilled clinicians, these restrictions, they're illogical, they're problematic, Heart attacks and strokes and cancer, they don't know any geographic bounds. With air travel, people can contract medical illnesses far from home. Regulators should safely implement a common national licensing process. Assuming that all states would recognize it and they'd grant medical licenses to any doctor without a history of professional impropriety, this could share medical expertise across the country very rapidly. How likely is that to happen, Robbie? Jeremy, it's not very likely. In fact, it's very unlikely. And the reason is financial. Licensing fees support state medical boards and state-based restrictions limit competition from out-of-state physicians, allowing local providers to drive up prices. To address healthcare's quality, access, and affordability, we need to achieve economies of scale. And that's best done by allowing all doctors in the U.S. to join one care delivery pool rather than retaining 50 separate ones. Doing so would allow 
for a national mental health service. It would give people in underserved areas access to trained therapists. It would help to reduce the 46,000 suicides that take place in America each year. And it would allow patients to get expertise from doctors, regardless of whether the physicians practiced in the same state or elsewhere. I mean, think about the following. Let's say you have a new cancer diagnosis and you want a second opinion from a physician at the Mayo Clinic. You fly to Minnesota and you see the doctor. All of that's legal. But if you want to get a virtual consult from the same doctor for the same problem, it's not possible unless he or she has a second license, the second license where you live. It's the exact same medical care. But based upon where you're standing at that moment, receiving that expertise is legal in one place and is illegal in another. How necessary are regulations in healthcare? Jeremy, medicine is a complex profession in which errors kill people. And we absolutely do need healthcare regulations. Doctors and nurses need to be well-trained so that life-threatening medications can't fall into the hands of people who will misuse them. But when outdated thinking leads to deaths from drug overdoses, when it prevents patients from using technology to improve their health, and when it limits access to the nation's best medical expertise, regulators need to stop and recognize the harm they're doing. Healthcare is changing rapidly as technology races ahead. Regulators need to catch up. Let's move on to the second topic. We talked last Diving Deep podcast about the conglomerate of monopolies and promised listeners we'd return with a view to the future. How do you think today's healthcare challenges will be solved? Jeremy, had you asked me that question a few years ago, I would have offered a comprehensive view of what I believed should and must occur. However, after hearing a decade of policy experts telling the nation what we should and must do, and then watching as nothing happened, I'm much more focused today on what is likely to be. As an example, surveys show that 57% to 70% of American voters believe that our nation should adopt a single-payer healthcare system like Medicare for All. And likewise, public health advocates insist that more of the nation's $4 trillion healthcare budget should be spent on combating the social determinants of health, things like housing and security, low-wage jobs, and other socioeconomic stressors. But the reality is that neither of these ideas will happen, nor will dozens of other positive healthcare solutions that should and must happen, they won't be implemented. I recognize saying this will disappoint many listeners, but that's the American reality today. When the things that should happen don't, there's always a reason. And rarely does that obstruction yield, no matter how loud doctors, nurses, or health policy experts say that it should. As we discussed in the last episode of Diving Deep, here's biggest roadblock to change is the conglomerate of monopolies. And that includes hospitals, drug companies, private equity, staked physicians, and commercial health insurers. These powerful entities exert monopolistic control 
over the delivery and financing of the country's medical care, and they remain fiercely opposed to any change in healthcare that would limit their influence or income. Why are you so sure a government won't lead the way? Jeremy, with the U.S. Senate split 51-49 and with virtually no chance of either party securing the 60 votes needed to avoid a filibuster, Congress will at most tinker with the medical system. That will mean no Medicare for all, no radical distribution of health funds, and no massive transformation of how medicine is practiced in the United States today, at least led by the government. Even if elected officials started down the path of major reform, healthcare's incumbents would lobby. They threatened to withhold campaign contributions, which exceed $700 million a year, and they'll swat down any legislative effort that might harm their interests. In American politics, money talks. That won't change soon, even if voters believe that it should. What about employers? As you know, Jeremy, private payers wield significant power and influence. In fact, the Fortune 500 represents two-thirds of the U.S. GDP. It generates more than $16 trillion in revenue, and businesses provide health insurance to more than half of the American population. With all that clout, you'd expect that business executives would demand more from healthcare's conglomerate monopolies. You might assume they'd push back against the prevailing fee-for-service payment model and replace it with a form of reimbursement that rewards doctors and hospitals for the quality, not the quantity of care they provide. You'd think they would insist that employees get their care through technologically advanced multi-specialty medical groups, ones which deliver superior outcomes when compared to solo physician practices. But instead, these companies take a more passive position. In fact, Employers for decades have been willing to shoulder 5 to 6% increases in insurance premiums each year, which is double the average rate of revenue growth. And they haven't put up very much resistance. Why do you think that is, Robbie? One reason, Jeremy, that they tolerate these hefty rate hikes rather than battling insurers, hospitals, and doctors involves a surprising truth about insurance premiums. Business leaders have figured out how to transfer much of their added premium costs to employees in the form of high deductible health plans. A high deductible plan forces the beneficiary to pay first dollar for their medical care, which significantly reduces the premium costs paid by the employer. Businesses also, also realize that high deductibles only financially burden employees who experience an unexpected catastrophic illness or accident in a given year. That means that most workers won't immediately feel this sting. As for employees with ongoing expensive medical problems, many employers typically don't mind watching them walk out the door over high out-of-pocket costs. Their departure reduces the company's medical costs the following year. Finally, businesses know that employee medical costs are tax-deductible. And this cushions the impact of premium increases. So what starts as a 6% annual increase to the company ends up costing employees 3%, the government 1%, and the business only 2%. In today's strong labor market, which boosts the lowest unemployment rate in 54 years, employers are reluctant to battle healthcare's biggest players, 
and disrupt medical care, regardless of whether doing so would be beneficial to the company and beneficial to the health of its workers. What about others inside medicine? Jeremy, I'm doubtful that anyone inside medicine will step forward to lead major transformation. In fact, if there were a job opening for, let's say, leader of the American healthcare revolution, I believe that the applicant pool would be shallow. As we said, elected officials would shy away, fearing the loss of campaign contributions. Businesses and top executives would pass on the opportunity, preferring to shift insurance costs to employees and the government. Patients, they'd feel overwhelmed by the power of the incumbents and the task itself. Doctors, nurses, and hospitals, despite the frustration with the current system, they'd want us to take small steps They'd be fearful of retribution by members of the conglomerate of monopolies and the risks that disruptive change could produce for themselves in their day-to-day practices. If all those individuals and businesses with the most to gain or lose aren't going to lead the way, who do you predict will? Jeremy, to revolutionize American medicine, a leader will need to possess three characteristics, sufficient size and financial reserves to disrupt the entire industry, not just a small piece presence across the country to leverage economies of scale and a willingness to accept the risks of radical change in exchange for the potential to generate massive profits. Whoever leads the way, they won't do so because these investments should happen or must happen. They'll take the chance because the upside is dramatically better than sitting on the sidelines. Amazon, CVS, Walmart, and other retail giants are the only entities I can envision who fit the revolutionary criteria above. In healthcare's game of monopoly, they're the ones best able to take high-stakes risks and most capable of disrupting the industry. What makes you single these three companies out? For years, Jeremy, these retailers have been acquiring all the necessary game pieces, including pharmacy services, health insurance capabilities, and innovative care delivery organizations to someday take over American healthcare. As such, I believe leading healthcare's future disruption aligns with their corporate strategy. CVS Health already owns the health insurer Aetna. It recently bought value-based care company Signify Health for $8 billion, along with nationally recognized primary care provider Oak Street Health, for another $10.6 billion. Walmart recently entered into a 10-year partnership with the nation's largest insurance company, United Health, gaining access to its 60,000 employed physicians. UHG then acquired LHC, a massive home health provider. And finally, Amazon recently purchased primary care provider One Medical for $3.9 billion, and it has close ties with nearly all of the country's self-funded businesses. Jeremy, when I see $25 billion being spent in a matter of months on healthcare merger and acquisition, it tells me the process of change has already begun. Harvard professor Clay Christensen noted, disruptive change almost always comes from outsiders. That's because incumbents cling to overly expensive and inefficient systems which benefit their bottom line. The same is holding true in American medicine. The retail giants recognize that healthcare 
is exorbitantly priced, uncoordinated, inconvenient, and technologically devoid. And they can see the hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue and profit that they could earn by offering a consumer-focused, highly efficient alternative. How do you see this transformation happening, Robbie? Initially, I believe the retail giants will take a two-pronged approach. They'll first continue to promote fee-for-service medical services through the pharmacies and retail clinics, which are both in-store and virtual. And they'll also simultaneously embrace every opportunity to grow their market share in Medicare Advantage, which is the capitated option for people over the age of 65. And within Medicare Advantage, they'll look for ways to leverage sophisticated IT systems, create economies of scale, provide care that's better coordinated, technologically supported, and lower cost than anything that's available right now. Instead of including all community doctors in their networks, they'll rely on their own clinicians, augmenting them with a limited cohort of the highest performing medical groups in the area. Rather than including every hospital as an inpatient option, they'll contract with highly respected centers of excellence for procedures like heart surgery, neurosurgery, total joint replacement, and transplants. They'll trade high volume for high quality and low prices. Over time, they'll reach out to self-funded businesses to offer proven superior clinical outcomes, and they'll guarantee lower total cost. Then they'll make a capitated model that preferred insurance plan for all companies and individuals. And along the way, they'll apply consumer-driven medical technologies, including next generations of ChatGPT. They'll empower patients. They'll provide continuous care for people with chronic diseases, and they'll ensure that the medical care provided is safe, effective, and affordable. How do you predict healthcare professionals will respond? As you know, Jeremy, I'm a baseball fan, and Tommy Lasorda, the long-term manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, once remarked, there are three types of people, those who watch what happens, those that make it happen, and those who wonder what just happened. Lasorda's quip describes healthcare today. The incumbents, they're watching closely. I don't think they're seeing the big picture as these retail giants acquire medical groups and home health capabilities. The retail giants themselves are making the big moves. They're assembling the pieces needed to completely transform American medicine as we think of it today. And finally, tens of thousands of clinicians, thousands of hospital administrators, they seem to be ignoring and grossly underestimating the retail giants. And if they don't decide to take action soon, Jeremy, they'll get left behind and they're gonna wonder what just happened. Robbie, we have now completed 150 episodes of Fixing Healthcare. I know you recently wrote an article for Forbes about some of our great guests. Can you tell listeners what you talked about, including a few of your favorite quotes? Well, first, Jeremy, congratulations to you on our 150 episodes of Fixing Healthcare and the impact that we've had on both how Americans think about the medical care they receive and how they view the opportunities for the future. I'm sure you remember season one in 2018. We asked our guests for their ideas and proven solutions for achieving 
20% superior quality, 20% improved patient access, 20% lower costs, and 20% greater patient and clinician satisfaction. Since then, we've explored a range of subjects, but consistently returned to the theme of driving healthcare improvement and how it best can happen. To that end, here are a few of my favorite quotes. When it came to the business of medicine, I loved what Malcolm Gladwell said. In other professions, when people break rules and bring greater economic efficiency or value, we reward them. In medicine, he said, we need to demonstrate a consistent pattern of rewarding the person who does things better. Like Malcolm, I don't believe we're going to make American healthcare once again the best in the world unless we're willing to break medicine's outdated rules and drive superior outcomes. Another guest whose interview I really enjoyed relative to professional satisfaction was Jonathan Fisher, one of our country's experts on burnout. He said, the problem we're facing in healthcare is that clinicians are siloed. We may be siloed in our own institution thinking we're doing the best. We may be siloed in our own specialty, thinking we're better than others. All these divides need to be bridged. We need to begin the bridging. Like Jonathan, I recognize the systemic drivers of burnout imposed on doctors by insurers and healthcare systems are quite problematic. But like Jonathan, I also can see how much of the problem is under our control. Third, in a multiple set of shows, we've talked about the ways to make medicine equitable. On one of them, Dr. Jen Gunter lamented, women are not listened to by doctors in the way that men are. They have a harder time navigating the system because of that. Many times they're told their pain isn't that serious or bleeding isn't that heavy. We must do better at teaching women's health and medicine. I agree completely. We need to focus on the disparities in healthcare and they abound everywhere. As we talked about on the show last time, maternal mortality in black women in America, it's four times higher than for women in any other industrialized nation. It's twice as high as for white women in the United States. All of this has to improve. How about a few more quotes that stood out to you, Robbie? Jeremy, as you remember, a topic quite a number of our guests have referenced is the immense power social determinants of health have on clinical outcomes. Dr. David Feinberg, who's the CEO of Cerner and the chairman of Oracle's health division, emphasized this reality when he said, only 20% of whether we live or die, whether we have life in our years and years in our life is based on going to good doctors and good hospitals. We should put the majority of effort on the stuff that has a far greater impact. Your genetic code, your zip code, your social environment, your access to clean food, your access to transportation, how much loneliness you have or don't have. And Dr. Gordon Chen was similarly inspirational. And he and his brother, Chris, run ChedMed. And when they talked about making this shift, they talk about leadership and the role that doctors can play. Gordon said, if you think about what leadership really is, it's influence, nothing more, nothing less. And the only way to achieve better health for patients is to get them to change their behaviors in a positive way. That behavioral change takes influence. It requires primary care physicians to build relationships and earn trust with patients. That is how both doctors and patients together can drive health outcomes. And a final area that I 
focused on myself and found our guests incredibly educational and inspirational is in the area of technology. Vinod Kosla, one of the world's most successful entrepreneurs and technology leaders, highlighted the role that IT will have in the future. He said the most expensive part of the U.S. healthcare system is expertise. And expertise can be tamed with technology and AI. By capturing some of that expertise, each oncologist can provide 10 times more patient care than they would on their own without that help. And Dr. Eric Topol, the director of Scripps Research Institute, said in response to a question about training the next generation of healthcare leaders, it's pretty embarrassing. If you go across 150 medical schools, not one has AI as a core curriculum. Jeremy, when I think about technology, it's embarrassing how poorly we integrate modern information technology into medical practice. But it's also positive that there's so much more that we can do to improve the lives of patients and the professional satisfaction of clinicians through what's currently available, but grossly underutilized. We've had dozens of amazing guests, Robbie. How do you put all their perspectives together? Since our first season, Jeremy, Five years ago, our nation has spent $20 trillion on medical care. We've navigated the largest global pandemic in a century. We've developed an effective mRNA vaccine nearly from scratch. And yet after all that spending and scientific innovation, our healthcare problems today are worse than they were in the past. American life expectancy has dropped three years while maternal mortality rates have risen. Clinician burnout has accelerated amid a growing shortage of primary care. And compared to 12 of its wealthiest global peers, the United States spends nearly twice as much person on medical care. And yet, we rank last in clinical outcomes. As our guests in season one proved, the problem isn't that there aren't massive opportunities to address the current failures of the American healthcare system. It's that the United States has a knowing doing gap. Everyone recognizes our country must move from pay for volume to pay for value. And yet, despite a century of talking about it and over a decade of trying to make it happen, minimal change has occurred. If that's the case, who would you bet will lead the way? Jeremy, as we just talked about, industry-wide change never happens because it should it happens when demand and opportunity collide, creating space for new entrants. Outsiders push past the established incumbents. And in healthcare, I see two possible ways this can occur. One possibility is that providers, by that I include physicians, nurses, hospital leaders, they can rally and reform healthcare. We know from dozens of episodes of Fixing Healthcare that doctors and hospitals are struggling today. They're struggling with declining morale and decreasing revenue. Clinicians are exiting the profession. Hospitals are having to shutter their doors. As the pain intensifies, it's possible that medical group leaders will be the ones who decide to begin the process of change. Rather than continuing to be reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis, they'll demand to be paid through capitation receiving a fixed amount of money based on the number of individuals for whom they will be responsible, the age of their patients, and the relative medical risks of their needing care. Capitation financially will benefit those doctors who prevent medical problems, 
Help patients avoid complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer from chronic diseases and minimize patient error. Moving to a capitated payment methodology would reward those physicians who spend more time with each patient. It would eliminate the requirement for prior authorization. It would obviate, it would obviate the need for doctors to code and bill in order to be reimbursed for each patient visit or procedure. A capitated pay-for-value methodology would focus our nation on health and align the needs of patients with the final financial interests of providers. The approach has the power to restore the sense of mission and purpose that medicine has lost. I assume the second possibility is the one we previously discussed, that the large retailers will take healthcare over. That's what I see, Jeremy. If clinicians don't lead the way, corporate behemoths like Amazon, CVS, and Walmart will disrupt the healthcare system as we know it. All three of them, in the very near future, we'll have an insurance arm, pharmacy arm, and a large delivery system arm. Soon they'll have the ability not just to augment current medical care, but to disrupt and completely replace it. As we discussed, each is investing in new ways to empower patients, to provide in-home care, and improve access to both in-person and virtual medicine. And once generative AI solutions like ChatGPT gain enough computing power and users, tech-savvy retailers, they're gonna apply this tool to better monitor the health of patients, to enable healthier lifestyles, and improve the quality of medical care that clinicians provide compared to today. Jeremy, with the cracks in the current medical system widening, and its foundation eroding, disruption is inevitable. All that remains to be seen is whether it will come from inside or outside of healthcare. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.